1: episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Romy Grossberg. Romy is a social worker, writing therapist, and author who specializes in mental health and the emotional well-being of adults and teenagers. Author of The 5-Minute Guide to Emotional Intelligence, and more recently The Key, A Social-Emotional Toolkit for Teens, Romy has been published in numerous forums such as the Huffington Post and Griffith Review and has presented on the TEDx stage in Cambodia. Having lived in Cambodia for three and a half years as the manager of a hip-hop centre working with street kids, Romy recently finished writing her memoir, Hip-Hop and Hope, from the slums of Phnom Penh. She now lives in southern Thailand, working as a holistic counsellor and writing mentor for adults and teenagers, both at a wellness resort and online. Romi also travels to conferences teaching the key, a social-emotional toolkit for teens, to educators, as well as in schools, teaching directly to teenagers. Teenagers are introduced to the ideas of emotional intelligence, self-awareness, and self-understanding to learning greater life skills and coping strategies to not merely survive school and home life, but to thrive socially, emotionally, and mentally. Your EQ, emotional intelligence, is based on self-awareness. It is understanding your emotions and why you react to people or situations the way you do. Increasing your awareness is important for the very simple reason that it ultimately makes life easier. It is difficult to notice the good or acknowledge the not-so-good in life if you aren't aware in the first place. Understanding and increasing your awareness and learning some of the tools in this book can help you deal with pressure, anxiety, school life, friendships, relationships, arguments, family life, and growing up. She writes in her opening chapter. The key is a guidebook addressing mental, social, and emotional health. Romy believes that in today's current climate of an elevating mental health crisis amongst adolescents worldwide, it is vital young people are adequately equipped to handle their thoughts and emotions as they move through this developmental stage of identity. Teens can learn that even seemingly complex issues or problems can be taught and dealt with in very real terms with practical guidance, learning, activities, videos, and discussion. Romy's book, The Key, is broken into three sections. Number one, my friendships, two, me, and three, my family. She begins with friendships because friendship is the most important thing during adolescence, and so the best way to engage. It's not exactly a lie when we say what we know other people want to hear. But it's not always the truth, either. It is us trying to fit in, not stand out, be cool. We all do it. But wouldn't it be cooler if we didn't have to always concentrate or try so hard? If we could be honest with ourselves and our friends and know that everything would just be okay, writes Romy Grosberg. The Key includes over 20 topics, including negative thought patterns, unconditional love, bullying, effective communication, anxiety, trusting yourself, and many more. Romy's books are available on her website. She also teaches The Key as a full course or tailored workshops and is available for individual, online, teen, or adult counseling. Here is the interview with Romy Grossberg.
0: In your own words, who is Romy Grosberg? Romy is an author and a social worker and a
2: holistic counsellor, a daughter and an auntie and hopefully a good friend.
0: (laughs) That's great. And that's part of our conversation today about friendship and friends. So before we get to that, before we talk about the topic in your book, The Key, a social emotional toolkit for teens, I have a few warm-up questions, as I mentioned before. And the first one is, what is another word for life? Um, I think where I live, uh, I live
2: in a small community. I think everybody would say love.
0: What is the meaning of freedom to
2: you? I think it's health and family and the ability to choose how you would like to live your life.
0: What is your greatest joy? Helping other people. Mm. What is the world's greatest need, in your opinion? Harmony. Harmony. And you mentioned earlier love. That's another word for life. So speaking of love, what is love to you?
2: Um, I think when I say love, I talk about unconditional love, like love without boundaries, love without judgments, love just because we're all humans and we can
0: Do you connect unconditional love to God? No, not particularly, not
2: personally anyway. Um, I think unconditional love, it can be to any higher spirit that people believe in. For me, it's not necessarily a religious thing. It's more about
0: humanity, I suppose. What do you think is the purpose of life? That's a
2: great question. I think everyone would probably have a different answer. The purpose of life for me, I think, is to, to live humble and to live in line with my I suppose my own ethical standard and my own morals and to I think, you know, one of those things, what would you want to be considered at the end of your life? And I would say probably a good person that did their best to help others.
0: That's interesting. That always goes back to that. Unconditional love, serving, helping others. That's throughout my conversations with so many people. That is so wonderful. So let's talk about your work. How did you become a writer? It was never intentional. I've always written
2: from when I was about eight years old. I've kept a journal. Um, from 2010, I was living in Cambodia, working with street kids out in the slums. And I would often write for the newspaper. I'd write articles for different places. I wrote for the local uh, WhatsApp Phnom Penh, a local paper in Cambodia. And I actually never considered myself a writer. It was just what I did because I could and because I enjoyed it. And I had a natural talent for it. Uh, living in Cambodia a lot of people used to always say to me, you should write a book. And I thought that was an absolutely crazy idea. <laughs> I never, ever considered it. And um, I don't know, I just heard it so many times, I think because the life I led in Cambodia was so interesting. It wasn't the normal expat life. I was very embedded and ingrained in the the slum community working with street kids. And I was really experiencing a life that no other Westerner had really experienced. And I started thinking, maybe I should. And then From the minute I thought maybe I should, I feel like I've actually made no decisions since. I'm very much a person that lives intuitively. And if I feel like if you're on your path, if you're on the correct path, then everything falls into place. And really, everything fell into place. Before I knew it, I was having wine with a friend who was saying, but my friend runs writer's retreats. And two minutes later, I'm on the phone with this person. A week later, I'm flying to Laos to do the writer's retreat. And it just snowballed from there. And that was probably, I think, 2013, and I started writing my memoir, Hip Hop and Hope, which was my life in Cambodia. So it actually started with that, and I sidetracked myself by writing all these other books that we'll talk about today. So yeah, it wasn't intentional at all, and somehow now I'm on book number three.
0: (laughs) I love that. Living intuitively. So you mentioned being on the right path. How do we know when we are living when we are on the right path? I think
2: when people ask the question that they're not there yet, because when you are on the right path, you stop asking the question, if that makes sense. There's an intuitive gut feeling. A lot of the work that I do in counseling sessions is very much about how do we connect to that gut feeling And how do we listen to it and trust it? And for me, on this path of writing, I never asked another question from the moment that that started happening. It just snowballed. And it's like, you know, when you book a flight and that day that you want, the prices have dropped and you go to your favorite cafe and you bump into a particular person that you really wanted to see. When you're on the right path, everything falls into place. So when you're not on the right path, everything's difficult. You know, you go online to book a flight or something and the computer crashes or the price goes up or something jams. You know, when everything goes wrong, it's when I feel like the world is saying, listen, stop, slow down. This is not what you're meant to be doing. So for me, it's really listening to the, the cues that are going on around you all the time and actually trusting that they're there for a reason. That's how I look at it.
0: Yeah, I love that. It makes sense to me. I'm just wondering if um, having no more questions to ask also means that we have all the answers. We have found all the answers.
2: Yeah, look, I think I think it's about, you know, when I teach people about how do you connect with your gut instinct, how do you connect with your trust? The second part always, which is more difficult for a lot of people, is how do I trust that? Like people will come up with a decision like, oh, actually, I get it. I'm on the right path. This feels right. And within a split second, they're like, oh, but I don't know, you know, that's that trust that, you know, taking a risk sometimes can be the right thing. So it's about trusting that.
0: Yeah, that's another word that I really love to use, and I use it all the time, trust, right? So what was the inspiration to write The Key, a social-emotional toolkit for teens? So in the middle of writing my memoir, I wrote another book, The
2: Five-Minute Guide to Emotional Intelligence. And that's sort of a journal style writing therapy. I do a lot of writing therapy. So I did that because I was working in Thailand. I moved from Cambodia to Thailand. And I did it based on the client group that was sort of sitting in front of me just to get people writing, journaling and interacting in their own life. And from that, I started realizing maybe I want to work with, um, go back to working with teenagers because I'd switched to adults. And what happened was I started noticing that all the counseling that I was doing with adults, it didn't matter what the topic was, mental health, emotional health, life choices, trust, love, relationships, everything came down to the same thing. And for me, that thing was we never learned these skills. We didn't learn these tools when we were younger. No one taught us what unconditional love was. No one taught us how to communicate effectively or even about bullying. You know, bullying is now in schools, but when we were younger, We didn't learn these things. So when I'm counselling adults, I realise what's lacking is coping mechanisms, strategies, life skills, emotional intelligence on a real learning level. So I started thinking about that. And I actually went to a school in Australia, which is Bialik College. is the top school in Victoria. And it's the area that I'm from. And I actually made an appointment. I was having one of those very bold, confident moments where I made the appointment and I walked in. And I just said to them, look, the research I see says that there is nothing in schools. And this is a few years ago, and there was nothing. So meditation and yoga was creeping into the younger primary school levels, like 10-year-olds, eight-year-olds. But as soon as they got to secondary school to high school, like from 12 years old up, there was absolutely nothing for kids across the world. And that, for me, completely blew my mind. I'm like, they're reaching adolescence and adolescence is the developmental stage of identity. So they're trying to work out who they are in the world and where they fit in. And we're pushing maths and science in their face and making them get high grades or, you know, have anxiety and panic attacks. And but no one's teach them how to breathe and calm down and how to prepare mentally for an exam and how to deal with sibling rivalry and jealousy. And I just sort of went to this school and I asked that question. And I kind of thought that they would you know, not appreciate me coming in and saying that. And they just looked at me and they're like, you're absolutely right. What do we do to move forward? And I was so impressed. I was like, you know what? I will go home. I will write the book and I will come back to you. So it started from there.
0: How wonderful. And that is so true. So it goes back. You talk about self-awareness. and That's my next question. Uh, Talk to me about emotional intelligence based on self-awareness.
2: Well, yes, self-awareness, I always laugh, self-awareness and self-inquiry are probably two words that I say, you know, a 100 times a day, particularly when I'm at work, because it really is about being aware of yourself. And it sort of sounds a bit, I don't know, maybe obvious, but we're actually not really aware of ourselves. We're not aware of what we're doing and, you know, looking at ourselves and our behavior. Like say we're always ending up in an argument, you know, we're quick to blame the other person or there being this or that. But actually, what's our role? You know, what are we doing that we keep landing in the same behavior, the same, you know, outcomes? So it's about looking at what are we doing and sort of what's our role in these things? And I think that um, it's really important that we all stop and look at our role in things and trying to understand what's going on. It's sort of understanding your emotions and the way you react, respond, behave with people, with yourself in situations, just having that real awareness. So that's how I look at it.
0: Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Does it take um, methods like uh, quieting the mind, meditation? Yeah, it takes, I mean, self-awareness is really, it's slowing
2: down. I think journaling is a really fantastic way to do it. Um, writing therapy, just recognizing, you know, how, you know, I always say to people who are not, say, very confident or comfortable with it, at the end of the day, write down your, in your journal or your diary And ask yourself the question, how was my day? What went well? What didn't go well? And see if you can see at those points when things went well or didn't go well, when you're feeling happy or sad or whatever emotion, what was going on at that time? Were you talking to someone? Were you alone? Were you reflecting? Were you busy? Was your mind quiet? Start trying to understand what is creating the emotions inside of you and what you're responding to so you can start associating your behaviors and your actions and your emotions with what's going on in your environment. It's a good starting point for people that have never done this kind of thing before to see what am I actually doing? What's my role in all of this? Because we all play a role all day. We've got to stop looking outside and actually look inside.
0: And that takes practice, doesn't it, Rami? Yeah, lots of practice. And keeping patience too. Practice being patient because we are learning something new. So mistakes are okay. Let's talk about um, friendship. This is the f- section one. Can your book, it's so informative. I love the way the graphics, because very visual and easy to understand that way. So the friendship. And my question, my first question is about the meaning of friendship. What is your definition of a true friend?
2: Yeah, I mean, even I suppose what I've put in my book, I would sort of agree with It's Friendship is really, it's having somebody that you can completely be yourself around. So, you know, there's a lot of fake friendships or semi-fake friendships or trying to fit in friendships, particularly when we're talking adolescents and younger people and even into our 20s and sometimes older. But somebody that we can 100% be our open, vulnerable selves without any fear of judgment. You know, I had a girlfriend of mine bring me from Australia, I'm in Asia, last night in the middle of the night and I haven't spoken to her for ages, like for a very good friend, but we haven't spoken for a long time and she was just having a freak out over some things and her and I have a bond that is unbreakable. She rang with a, a list of sort of problems and issues that was going on and I knew that I was the person that she trusted to be able to say a lot of really kind of crazy things. And I would not judge and I would be there for her no matter what she said. And that to me is
0: friendship. Yeah. Another question just came to my mind. It's very, it's fascinating that you started your book. The section one is on friendship and section two, it's about ourselves, me, and then family. Why friendship? Why did you choose to focus on friendship on section one?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, but it was very deliberate. So this book is for adolescents, it's for teenagers. And like I said, it's the, the developmental stage of identity. So you would think that me, the section on me and identity, which is very much about identity and who am I, would be first. But if you think about adolescents, which is 12 to 18 years old, the single most important thing that's going on in their lives at that age group is friends. So what their friends think is often more important than what they think. In everyday life, when they're getting dressed, they're getting dressed thinking, What will my friends be wearing? What will my friends think? What will this boy or girl think of it? So, everything they do is very much around friendships because they haven't fully d- identified and developed who they are yet. So, they're still very much trying to fit in. And I thought, if I go straight into the section on who are you, it would be overwhelming and daunting. If I started with friendships, which is very much who are you, but from the aspect of friendships and how you fit in, it's much more connecting to a younger mind.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Because we always try, even adults, that's interesting. <laughs> we would do that all the time.
2: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, we still do it. So I thought, if I can get younger people to feel confident to wear what they want, to think what they want, to be comfortable in their own skin at a younger age, then hopefully as they grow into adults, they're much more confident adults. Their self-awareness is already really solid and they won't develop the same kinds of issues that we see in adults today. Right,
0: right. So what is the direct connection between happiness and friendships? I think
2: if you've got true friendships where you can be yourself and you can be comfortable and you feel good as a person in the way you support and help your friends and they are doing the same back, then you have the ability to to be actually happy. There's a lot of fake happy, fake friendships. You know, they're young people. So it's all about pretending to be happy, laughing when you think it's not particularly funny, you know, all of that kind of thing. But if we can be comfortable in our own skin, then our friendships are true and our happiness actually exists without trying or searching for it.
0: You speak of being emotionally safe. I thought it was very interesting. There's... um. I think I never, maybe I've read it somewhere before, but I don't remember. So can you talk to me about how does it feel and what is to be, to feel, to be emotionally safe?
2: Look, emotionally safe is, you know, I suppose how we define true friendship. When you feel emotionally safe in your friend's presence or even in your own presence, or if you're the person providing that for someone else. So You know, even as an adult, even in my own personal life now, and I'm in my 40s, you know, the other day myself personally, I was walking home from work. It had been a very stressful day with all the coronavirus that's going on. And I was doing a lot of counseling. And I bumped into a particular friend that I'm not even that close with. I don't spend a lot of time with him, but he has something about him that is very safe. And the minute I saw him, I burst out crying because I felt safe to do so. Had I bumped into someone else, I would have held it in. Certain people have it naturally and certain people make an effort to provide it. But being an emotionally safe person, holding that space, which is as a counsellor, we all do professionally, but doing it naturally in your, in your day-to-day life is a really, really special quality to have.
0: Oh, wow. That's an interesting uh, experience.
2: Mm, it was beautiful.
0: Beautiful, right? Yeah, I was just thinking about experiences that I had, similar experiences, and it's very true. It doesn't have to be a friend, friend, but Yeah. Is there space?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And we don't often think about that kind of thing. In as a professional in the area, my job is to hold space. But in my personal life it's one of the most special things you can do for someone, I think.
0: So you ask the question, are you a true friend or are you a friend? And then I remembered a a quote from Maya Angelou. She says, to find a true friend, you must be one. And that is so true. So how do we know when we are a true friend ourselves?
2: I think a lot of it is that gut feeling. You know, you know when you're lying. You know when you're telling the truth. You know when you're being a good friend. I mean, I remember even when I was a teenager, sometimes I would lie or I would do something that I didn't agree with in myself, but I was scared or I didn't know what else to do or I'd gotten myself in trouble and couldn't find a way out. And I would fake my way through it. But I knew deep down inside that I was not being a good friend or I was not being honest. And I think it really comes down to trusting. Trusting yourself, also when you're young, trusting your family or whatever your family environment is. That, you know, a lot of the work I do with teenagers now and counseling teenagers is you've really got to find someone in your family circle, which is why I talk about family in the book, that you trust. There's gotta be somebody that you can turn around and say, Listen, guys, I messed up. I don't know how to get out of it, but I, I need to talk to someone. And that's really, really important to to trust. Somebody around you, and start to trust yourself. And when you're young, that's that's really difficult.
0: So let's talk about jealousy and envy. How are they different, Rami? Yeah, look, I find even
2: when I'm teaching the this topic, um, we really go through it a lot. I mean, I've got in my book where is it? Uh, envy is when we want what someone else has, and jealousy is the fear of losing what we have. So jealousy is you know we're worried that we'll be say a new kid comes to school we'll be worried that we'll be replaced by that kid and we'll lose what we have which is maybe being the center of attention or being the best friend or part of you know the circle whereas envy is more when we want what someone else has when you're envious of someone else they've got you know, a new iPhone and I want one, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, these are, you know, big, big problems for teenagers. These are the things they worry about. (laughs) Who are my friends and who has the latest technical equipment? So, and it's interesting, you know, when we did the jealousy and envy section, because I teach it in schools as well as one-on-one, it's interesting to see what comes up. We put on the whiteboard, but collectively, I had 100 kids, uh, was it last year or the year before, 12 and 13-year-olds. And the number one thing that they were collectively jealous over was um, not, being in, not being part of a, a WhatsApp group. Oh, wow. That was one thing that, yeah. Wow. And for me, you know, I grew up before technology, but, <laughs> right. you know, because they felt like everything was going on and they weren't included. So not being part of a WhatsApp group was actually just above not being invited to a party.
0: So that's how?
2: They're the things that they would get jealous over. But these are teenage, you know, when we were young, it was the same. If there was a party going on and we weren't invited, we'd be either jealous or envious or upset or hurt. There's a whole lot of emotions that come with it. And particularly sibling rivalry and jealousy over older and younger siblings is a big one. The older brother or sister gets things first, you know, they get the new phone first or they get to stay out till later because they're older. So the older one gets everything and we get the hand-me-down. But if they have a younger sibling, they're cute, so they get away with more and I'm always in trouble. So, you know, there's, there's issues in every corner if you look, if you look around. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's so true. I'm wondering if there is such a thing as healthy jealousy and healthy envy. Well, I think if you
2: can keep it in check, yes. it's about Because when it's unhealthy, it can really lead to depression, anxiety at the extreme end. But, you know, it can end up with competition or with sadness, with doubt, with being, you know, being upset all the time. But if you can sort of stop and see what's going on, one of the big tips I give is that recognizing that when somebody else gets something or someone else's success, if they get a great grade on a test – does not take away from your success. So if you get 92 and I get 90 on a test or I get 50, just because you got 92 doesn't take away from my grade. They're different. And I can be happy for you and happy for me at the same time. So if we can get to that place and if we're comfortable within ourselves, we can. But if we're not confident, then we will be constantly chasing something else and being afraid of what everybody else has that 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 affects us. So a lot of it comes back to, even though there's, you know, 30 or so different topics in my book, the bottom line is really self-esteem and trust within yourself.
0: And that goes back to that word again, self-awareness. Yeah, awareness, -awareness, self-awareness, self-knowledge, right? Yeah, so you actually mentioned already the uh, the consequences of... um, of having these emotions when they become unhealthy, then now we, we have doubt, uh, the sense of competition, depression, anxiety, you know that. And now another topic that you mentioned that's very uh, interesting and important to, to address is bullying. So why is bullying and being a bully uh, not a normal behavior? Well,
2: I mean, bullying... Look, there's so many people that specialize in bullying now. and Most schools actually have people who come in just to talk about bullying. And I'm by no means the expert on bullying. I put a small section in it just to acknowledge and help people through. But often the bully is doing it from a place of insecurity. And they're often doing it because of maybe something that's going on in their home life or something going on in their personal life that they feel the need to put other people down to bring them up. It's unhealthy because rather than, say, you and I being equal, if I was feeling like I was a smaller person or not as good or not as clever or not as pretty or whatever it is, rather than me rise up to meet you, which is healthy, you know, look after myself more, get more healthy, study more, rather than me rise up to meet you, what I would do as a bully is I would put you down to make me feel bigger if that makes sense. So it's very much about putting the others down to bring your self-esteem up in a very unhealthy way. And it can start from little things and really go all the way into very extreme behaviors. So it really can be dangerous. It's dangerous for the bully. And I often do feel I have a lot of empathy for bullies because the way I look at it is nobody is born and grows up thinking, you know what, I'm going to grow up and be a bully. We don't, we don't, we're not wired that way. So something has gone on in our upbringing that we felt that that was our only way to achieve happiness, to achieve recognition, to get attention, whether it's negative attention or not. At some point, we just want attention and the negative attention will do if it gives us what we crave, which is for somebody to notice us. So I do have empathy for bullies also because... They need help. They really do. They need someone to talk to, to understand what's going on, and to bring up their self-esteem in a real and true way. And on the flip side, you've got the people being bullied. Now, I work with adults and teenagers, and the adults that I work with that were bullied still remember in detail every second of that bullying. So the the emotional impact it has on people that were bullied. Is very big and very real. And they will say, I was bullied when I was 12, and maybe they're 50 now. And we're working on something that happened almost 40 years ago that needs to be undone. So bullying is a very real problem in schools and in life too. I mean, there's bullying in offices too these days, in adults. And people are less inclined to put their hand up and saying I'm being bullied because we feel a bit ridiculous. We're adults. We think we should be able to take care of ourselves, but being bullied is—it's horrific. It's—it's it's a really scary thing to happen. It makes you question a lot of things. It makes you feel uncertain about yourself, and then you're not sure what to do and how to behave back. It can be a very confusing time for teenagers and adults.
0: I'm wondering if bullying—it's um, also connected to—can uh, be connected to uh, psychological disorders.
2: Absolutely, yeah. Look, I work in mental health. That's one of my specialties. Um, look, for sure. I think for me, uh, my book and my work is I'm trying to focus on your everyday kid, your everyday teen, because yeah, you enter the mental health world, and that's a whole, it's a whole other series of books, really, <laughs> for you know people that have different psychological disorders or different mental health issues. But for me, I feel like there's a lot of you know psychologists and psychiatrists that were working with with people that have actual psychology psychological disorders. For me, it was like. But what about the kids that are just trying to get through life, just trying to get through school and they don't have any coping strategies and they don't know what to do? So for me, the bullying that I'm looking at is more your everyday kid, your your kid that's just having some problems at home or they're being put down by maybe their older brother or sister and they need trying to find a way to feel special. And the bullying can escalate into a dangerous place, but it's it's more your everyday kid that some counseling can really be very effective if we can you know, get to them early enough rather than people that need ongoing um, psychological
0: help. And you tell a story, the title is Each Day is a Gift. Do you want to disclose that story here? That might be the right moment. Yeah, look, it's a story that I found online, but I've seen it around
2: for ever. In fact, I remember when I was younger reading it. It's one of those stories that it doesn't matter how many times I read it, I cry every time. (laughs) But it sort of says at the top, each day is a gift and you never know how you can make the difference. And it's really, I I hesitated whether to read this in class when I was working particularly with 12 and 13 year olds. With older teens, I was okay because it does talk about suicide, but it it talks about it from the perspective of we have no idea what's going on in other people's minds. So maybe I see a kid that's looking particularly sad at school or they've been for a while looking like they're very distant or their behavior has changed and I can I know something's going on. Now I can ignore it, I can tease them, I can ignore them or, and here it says you never know how you make the difference, or I can go up and say hello or I can offer a hand or I can say, hey, come and have lunch with us today. And it might be uncomfortable for me for a second, but if that kid was genuinely not okay and they were having thoughts of self-harm or suicide or nobody likes me, what am I doing here? Everyone ignores me. They don't see me, so it doesn't matter. And then that one person says, hi, Romy, how are you today? Do you want to come and have lunch with us? That can be life-changing. And that's what this story is about. That this boy was taking all of his books home and he didn't because he didn't want his mum to have to unpack his locker and he had planned to commit suicide. And this other kid was the kid that sort of gave him a hand when he dropped his books. He just helped pick them up. And it was as simple as that. And he said, Hey, do you want to come play football with us or whatever it is? And that kid that was feeling so low realized that there might be hope, that somebody saw him, somebody invited him to something. And that changed his life and he went on to be valedictorian and it all ends very happy and good. But it's a beautiful moment and it's a beautiful story to stop and go, you know what? That one word can change someone's life. One positive word, one kind word can actually change someone's whole life if we stop and give them a moment. And I think that's very important to learn from young.
0: Wow. I, I agree. Also smile. I noticed that if I'm feeling sad somehow and I'm walking on the street and as an adult and I see somebody that looks happy and is smiley, that makes a difference too. I feel different. Absolutely. Um, you know,
2: I live in a beautiful kind of happy community really. And And I was back visiting Australia and I was a bit worried it was going to be winter and, you know, people in cities are sort of, you know, walking around with their head down. And day one, I was out, I went to visit my parents and the, the first day I landed, I was standing in the street and the first person that walked past me smiled and said hello. And immediately I thought, oh, you know what? This is going to be okay. Yeah, immediately, you know, so that smile, that hello, it really can change you.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So how are apologies and compliments connected to emotional intelligence, Rami? Yes. Really
2: interesting. I hadn't planned on putting that section in at all. I mean, compliments also was just a bit of a, mostly because I put in apologies. I thought, you know what, I'll put in compliments because, you know, it's, it's nice to learn. Why I did it is I had spoken to some teenagers who had done something not very nice and it really was not very nice. They had been very mean to some other people and they knew that and they sat with me and I had a young, a young teenage girl and she said, you know, I, this is what I did. And I said, do you acknowledge that what you did was wrong? How do you feel about it? And she was horrified by her own behavior. She'd acted violently against another person. She fully acknowledged that it was wrong. And I asked, have you thought to apologize? And the response was what got to me. The response was, oh, no, I can. And her whole face changed into complete fear. She's like, I can't apologize because if I apologize, then I'm admitting that what I did was wrong. I said, but you've just admitted that what you did was wrong. She goes, yeah, but if I admit that what I've done was wrong out loud, then what if they don't love me anymore? What if they think I'm a bad person? And it was the fear of losing love that that led this person to not apologize for something quite serious because that fear was bigger and it confused her greatly of how to do it and i think even i notice as an adult apologizing is really really difficult it's crazy because you know when you've done something wrong and the quicker you learn how to say hey listen i'm really sorry i didn't mean to do that i apologize the quicker we get good at that then it's no big deal anymore but we 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 find it very difficult as teenagers and as adults but i don't know why growing up in this world that the that apologies became so difficult but I think across the board with with a lot of people, it's very difficult. And I felt that the pain on this young girl's face, I thought if, if she only knew how to turn around and say, I'm really sorry, then everything would have been okay. But it escalated and escalated to a point where it felt like the world was crumbling down and she had no way out. So that's why I put the section on apologies. And we actually even practice different types of apologies. And we look at what's the difference between a genuine apology and when You know, you're kind of saying it for the sake of saying it, which is not really an apology. And then from there, I thought, you know what? How good do compliments make you feel? Why not make someone else smile? Because compliments also, when you're a teenager, have an issue around uh, jealousy again. You know, if I tell you that you look beautiful today, does that mean I look ugly? No, it means I'm giving you a compliment and it has nothing to do with me. I'm giving it to you. You're going to smile. I'm going to smile. Do you know what I mean? So, And myself, I have no idea why, but growing up, I couldn't take a compliment. If somebody gave me a compliment, I was one of those girls that threw it back at them or dismissed it. It made me really, really uncomfortable. I don't know why, but it did. And on one holiday, a a friend of mine, a girlfriend of mine, and I was probably 19 at this point, her and I went on a holiday together. And she was very, very confident within herself. She grew up with all sisters and she was able to develop great self-confidence. And she said to me on this holiday, Romy, on this trip, I'm going to teach you how to take a compliment because you're beautiful and you're going to get a lot of compliments on this holiday and I'm going to teach you how to handle it. And she actually did. She really did. Every day she's like, Romy, you look beautiful this morning. Romy, aren't you gorgeous? Romy, I love the way you think. And at first it was super uncomfortable. It became a bit of a joke and we had a laugh. But but my job was to turn around and simply say, thank you. And move on without the whole getting embarrassed and throwing it back in her face, which makes her feel bad. Right. So we actually practiced it over a few <laughs> weeks, and by the end, I got good at it. So, <laughs> but cute. we need we need to learn. Yeah, we need to learn these things because we don't learn them. And they sound so simple, right? In common sense, like basic. So simple. <laughs> Absolutely. For me, emotional intelligence, honestly, is common sense. It's just that, you know, as my father always says, common sense is not that common. So we (laughs) we do need to, yeah, yeah, we need to learn these things. And once we learn them, we've got them and then we're good, we can just move on. But we do need to learn these things. And the younger, the better for me.
0: True. Yeah, that's so true. So talk to me about values. How do we know the difference between values and beliefs? And what are some good examples of well-being values? I think values, for me, a lot of people say, how do you
2: know what your values are? And I think, again, it comes down to that, that gut instinct. When you go against your own values, you have that knot in your stomach that says something's wrong. When you're in line with your values, it feels good. You know, if I... If I value honesty, if if for me, honesty is the number one thing that I really, really value, and that is very important to me, if I'm being lied to, I would be devastated and hurt and go through a whole range of emotions and be even quite confused about the level of pain I was feeling. But that's because my value on the word honesty and the concept of honesty is strong. If there was somebody else that valued something else, more than honesty, they might be hurt, but it wouldn't feel like the end of the world for them. So what we value when we have something that goes in line with or against that value, we have strong reactions to it because it's something that we deeply care about. And for me, actually, honesty is one that's very important to me. So if somebody lies to me, whether it's intentionally or not, I can feel inside my body, I get very either emotional or hurt, or I have a strong reaction to it and feel the need to go and talk to that person and deal with it. If I lie to someone else, I mean, I feel literally feel sick. Like I almost as an adult now, I can't even do it anymore, because I just can't bring myself to go so deeply, you know, out of line with what I value. So it's that gut instinct. You know, we all have it, we have that You know, that feeling where you just sort of suddenly feel nauseous, you know, you feel a knot in your stomach. It's because you're going against what you believe in. Mm. Oh, wow. So our stomach, our gut is talking to us all day long and we just need to listen to it. You know, where I work, they do a lot of detoxing, as in detoxing from food and not eating and a lot of supplements and stuff like that. And I do a lot of support for the wellness center for the detoxes because you take food out of the equation you take, you know, you empty your stomach of the physical food, all that's left there is the emotions because we store our emotions in our gut, in our stomach. And they all, you know, they get a bit, you know, crazy and out of balance and out of whack when they're the only thing left. And when we're going against what's going on in ourselves, we can feel that. And for me, it does actually feel a bit nauseous, you know, and nausea is one of the symptoms of, of anxiety when you're feeling anxious about something because you know that you're not in line with yourself.
0: Does that make sense? It does, yeah. I was just reflecting earlier today, or maybe yesterday, not sure about values and beliefs, because values a lot of times can be external. We might have learned to believe that something's right and to do certain things in a certain way. That's like conditioning. But then, then, then there are they might be the same thing. I'm not sure. That's why I asked the question. I think I have been asking this question. Are values and beliefs the same or they are different somehow?
2: Uh, do you know what? I don't know. It's a really good question. I'm just sort of trying to think about it while just saying that. Because everything that I think, I then, you know, go back on back on myself. <laughs> so I was thinking, you know, values yeah. for me are, are something that we, we often do learn from a young age. Um, we sort of, through family, communities, schools, We learn values. We start with what's good, what's bad. It's good to share. It's bad to steal. You know, we learn all of these things from when we're young. You know, values are what is important in life. But I think beliefs, if I'm looking at younger people, I think beliefs kick in maybe when we're a bit older. You know, you don't sort of see a 10-year-old strongly believe in something. Maybe you do. You know, kids feel young, you know, seem to be kind of intelligent and more emotionally aware, a lot younger than when we were. But yeah, and it's a really good question. I think there's probably similarities and differences within the two actual words of beliefs and values. It's a great question. I'm going to go and ponder on that one. I'm going to get back to you on that.
0: Yeah, I have been thinking about it. Um, Also, uh, you talk a lot about the gut feeling. And I'm also wondering if that has something to do with intuition or instincts.
2: Yeah, look, I think so. I mean, it's one of my favorite, favorite topics. I talk about it kind of all day long because... It creeps into everything. So the way sort of I look at the world, counseling, my my life, my work, my professional and my personal life, I live the same in that for me, the gut is the center of emotions. Okay. And um, what we're looking for is balance. So everything is going up and down all day. But in there we have an intuitive space. You know, it's the center of emotions, it's the center of creativity, but it's the center of intuition. So our intuitive self sits in there and what gets in the way is us. We get in the way of listening to our intuitive space with all the noise in our head. That's why we do things like meditation. Meditation to me is not, meditation is not the answer itself. Meditation is slowing ourselves down enough that we can find the answer in ourselves. So if we can quieten our mind, we can listen to our body and our body is trying to talk to us but we're not listening often. So meditation is not the answer. It's not like go and meditate and everything will be fine. Go and meditate so that you can calm yourself enough that you can listen to yourself because the only thing that gets in our own way is us. Does that sort of answer that question?
0: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, so true. And earlier you spoke of empathy, and that's another question I used to ask, and maybe I'll ask you too, like how do we know the difference between empathy, sympathy and compassion?
2: Um, Well, I suppose for me, I I look at, in my book, I suppose even, I talk about empathy. I mean, compassion is compassion for others. Empathy is more about, I think, coming back to, self-awareness as in what's going on in the world that you are in and can you open your mind to something past that. So when I'm talking about empathy, I start on a really small scale and then I go all the way up to the largest scale because my first edition, it was just kind of you know, where do you fit in the world? And then I thought, wow, they're 12 year olds, give them a break. (laughs) So I scaled it back because I did the first edition and then I taught it in schools and got feedback and then wrote the second edition, which is what it currently is. But I started with asking questions because the book is interactive and I ask questions and they write answers. So I started with asking the questions, you know, do you notice, say, you know, when a friend is sitting down, if something is wrong? You know, if somebody's sitting there, do you notice when something is wrong? Do you have that awareness? What are the sum of the signs? What's their body saying? What are they saying? Are they behaving different? Are they too quiet, too loud? What's going on? So it's starting to notice, do I have empathy? Do I notice what's going on outside of myself? Do I see the sad kid? Do I notice when my friend is having a problem at home because I'm aware? So it's really... Uh, Empathy is very much having awareness of what's going on and then acting on that awareness. That to me is empathy. So I notice that you don't look okay today. And then I actually come up to you to see if you're okay and sit with you to be your friend. So I start from that level because with younger people, a 12 year old or an 18 year old, we can all do that. And then I make a bigger, what about your family? What about your school? What about your city, your country? What about countries you've never been to? What about what you're looking on at the news? You know, when you see a war in a different country or you see a flood or fires, we've just had severe fires in Australia. Do you have enough awareness or empathy outside of yourself that you can feel for people in a different environment and feel the need to want to help in some way? Do you want to donate some clothes? Do you want to do a fundraiser? Do you want to just raise people's awareness? and help create awareness. You know, there's lots of things that we can do that don't doesn't always involve money. We don't have to spend money to help others. And I think that's important also because often people think, oh, but I can't afford it. You know, every single time I go to Australia, depending on what season it is, I actually empty my wardrobe. I'm like, okay, it's getting cold. There's a lot of people sleeping rough. Maybe I don't need, you know, four jackets in my in my cupboard. I'll donate three of them. I only can wear one, so I don't need it. Just having awareness, it's cold, there are people worse off than me, I'll donate jackets. So, you know, it can be as simple as that, or at least it can start there.
0: Oh, definitely. Yeah, it starts with awareness. No doubt about that.
2: Mm, Yeah. And that's why I said at the beginning, you know, self-awareness is sort of the number
0: one word (laughs) that I say all day. And it is, Rami. Absolutely. I have a few questions for you, my final questions. But before that, would you like to add anything that I did not cover with my questions or even Talk to me about some key lessons from section two on me and section three on my family, because we didn't discuss those um, sections. So yeah, so we do the whole friendship section
2: and even all of those topics that we just talked about, jealousy and envy, what kind of friend are you, values, empathy, they're really about you or about us as people, but we're using the concept of friendships so that younger people can understand better about themselves. Because section two, you know, some of it's pretty intense, there's topics around tone of voice and communication, how we communicate, what role we play, what we can do about it ourselves, the choices that we make, listening to that gut feeling, things like that. Um, I talk a lot about breath and breathing, anxiety. And in those sections, particularly anything that's got a bit of a mental health aspect to it, I've got, there's 15 videos in the book. So there's links to the videos on my website. So something like anxiety, anxiety, you link to the video and it actually has me talking what is anxiety, what can we do for ourselves about it, at what point do we need help, things like that. There's three different types of meditation. There's things like understanding success and failure, which for me is a huge topic when you're talking teenagers, Um, where, you know, how many times have you heard a child going into an exam saying, oh, my God, I'm going to fail? Almost all of them. Almost every kid walks in saying that. And, I'm, and then I'm looking at the mindset. Well, if you're going in with that attitude, what are you doing to your body? What are you doing to your mind? Do you know what I mean? So we talk about the concept of success and failure. If, and same with adults too. All my work I do with teenagers, I do with adults also because we need to understand and redefine what we consider success and what we consider failure if we're going to keep saying I failed or I'm going to fail. Because the first question I say is, okay, that's great. What does failure mean? And nobody can answer the question. I'm like, well, then how are you going to fail if you don't know what you're talking about? So it's really, for me, it's raising questions, raising questions, getting people to know and understand what they're talking about so they can see what they're doing, our language, the way we think. You know, that's everything. That's what we have. That's what we're in charge of. We have 100% control over what we think, over our emotions, the language that we use, the words that we say. So if we're not keeping ourselves positive and in control of our own selves, then then who is? Do you know what I mean? And that's when we fall into, you know, pleasing others and not pleasing ourselves. So from there I then go into things like unconditional love, really understanding what it means to love or be loved without condition um negative thoughts which is huge i do it with adults almost on a daily basis even still negative thought patterns negative thought behaviors you know we get stuck in that loop i work with adults now where you know when i was 5 my father said that you know i wasn't very i wasn't very smart and now you know you're 60 or 70 years old and i'm undoing 65 years of you're not very smart and all of the repercussions and the things that that led to And the small life that you led because you never believed you could do more because you decided that that statement at five was true, that you're not very smart. And this is the stuff that I do on a daily basis. So if I can get, if I can work with teenagers to undo and get them to understand what negative thought patterns do to you, it's really, it's super simple. What I love about what I do is everything I teach is absolutely doable and it's doable instantly. I can teach someone what negative thoughts are, what's happening in your brain and what you can do about it immediately. And I love it for that.
0: I love your passion for it. Yeah, I get really excited. It's <laughs> six in the morning, I'm excited. Um, <laughs> really
2: and so, yeah, and then we do, you know, I talk about depression and things like that and different mental health issues, but also your day-to-day emotional health and issues like that that can help kids get through with coping strategies, once you've learned the coping strategies, once you have them, you've got them for life. So for me, it's teaching teenagers younger and younger. And I work one-on-one with kids or with teenagers, but also in schools because when I do it in a school, if I have like a whole year level, a few months ago, I actually did the whole school. I did every year level throughout a day. But if the whole school is talking about communication and tone of voice or the whole school is talking about success and failure, now we've got movement. We've got like energy and momentum and it's so exciting. So that's pretty much the section on me. And the last one is my family, which I'll do very quickly. My family, I look at the home, the home environment, and I look at divorce because when I was writing this, the stats were around 50%-ish in the US, um, 30 to 40% in the UK and Australia. That's the reality. The reality is, is there is a high divorce rate, Um Also, I have personally a lot of friends that are divorced and I thought, we can pretend it doesn't exist because it doesn't, you know, religious people don't want to talk about it or different schools are like, it's not our problem, but actually it's everyone's problem because kids deal with divorce differently. And when I was working at one of the schools in Australia, at the end of, I did a three month course with them. And at the end of the course where we finished teaching the key, one of the boys, a 13 year old boy wrote feedback and he wrote, I now know that my parents' divorce was not my fault. And I literally was in tears. I'm like, that 13-year-old boy now knows that his parents' divorce was not his fault. And that's huge. That's life-changing. So for me, if I can reach one kid, then I feel like I've done my job and I've done it well.
0: Yeah, I love what you do. I love your passion, your knowledge, your wisdom, Rami. Thank you so much. Thank you. So my final questions, and speaking of success and failure, so that's um, it's not a coincidence, but it's my first question. It has been for a while. How do you define success? What is success to you?
2: Success is being honest within myself, like that gut feeling. Success for me is, I suppose, writing my own story, writing my own to-do list of goals of what I would like to achieve in my personal life if we're talking personal sort of success, and then setting out to do them. And you can always change your goals. You don't need to strive for the best and then feel like you failed. You make your goals realistic of what you would like to achieve so that you can achieve them. I'm a big fan of small goals so that you achieve them and then making the next small goal so that you achieve them. So you have that constant sense of achievement so that you feel good so that you keep going. So I break it down into smaller bits for my life because I do so much. And that keeps me on that feeling of success so I can keep going.
0: What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? I think at different stages of life, I think to myself,
2: am I as good a person as I think I am? Or am I as honest as I pretend to be? You know, Am I being real? Am I being true? Always coming back and checking myself and really asking myself the hard questions and having to do the work if I need to, and having to accept that, you know, sometimes I'm not as perfect as I think I might be. And I'm like, actually, I need to, if I'm going to talk the talk, I need to walk the walk. And then I'll go away and do the work to make sure that I'm being true in what I teach and who
0: I am. If you knew you would die soon, would you change anything about your life or do anything differently? Do you know, I don't think I would. (laughs) What
2: I would do is my memoir that I spoke about at the very beginning of the talk, Hip Hop and Hope, of my life in Cambodia. I actually just finished writing it a few months ago. And now I'm procrastinating slightly and getting an agent and whatever because now I'm at the nervous end of the of the book. And it was an eight-year hugely emotional journey of writing. And if I was to die, I would want that book published and in people's hands before I went. That would be my dream.
0: Do you believe in life after death? I feel like I want to say no,
2: but at the same time, I talk to my friends that have passed away. So I, and I don't need to go anywhere spiritual or religious to do it. I will literally just have a conversation or I have a feeling that they're there or have a feeling that they're supporting me. It's not as I have arguments with them. (laughs) So I do, I do still engage with people that have passed on that I was very, very close with. So, so I'm not sure how I feel about that, but but I do talk to people sometimes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, What are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I don't
2: think we know anything for sure. I really don't. And, you know, we're in the middle of kind of world chaos of, you know, coronavirus is just getting a bit out of control as we speak. And it's made me stop and go, wow, what do we know for sure? It's actually been a question this week where the answer of what's going on in the world at this minute has changed literally every 10 minutes you can put on the news and the statistics, the advice that everything has changed. And it's made me have that real feeling of, wow, I don't think we know anything at all except to be safe. And, you know, it's made me reach out to more people. I've contacted friends that I haven't spoken to lately. I've checked in on a lot of people, but it's made me realize that, you know, what do we know for sure? Friends, friendships, are, you know, a good friendships exist. Reach out to your friends. Reach out to your family. I reached out to my sister who I hadn't spoken to lately. So I think, what do we know for sure? I think, you know, without sounding a bit hippie, whatever, but love, you know, love exists. And if we can continue to rise above the fear and the frustration and the unknowing and just love ourselves and everybody around us, then I think we're doing okay.
0: Thank you so much for your wisdom, your knowledge, and your genuine presence, Romy.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects?
2: So my website is my full name, com, and my email and everything is attached to that. And I I sort of live mostly Southeast Asia and travel around doing conferences and, and talks and stuff. But yeah, so... My two books, my teenage book and my adult book are both on my website and lots of videos um, and, you know, different advice and blogs and articles and things like that. And hopefully my memoir
0: (laughs) will be out there at some point
2: in the next year. (laughs) Right. But, yeah, all of my information really is on my website at romigrossberg.com.
0: Great. Thank you so much again and we'll talk soon.
2: Great. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Bye for
1: now, Romy.
2: Bye-bye. See you.
1: Thank you for listening. To learn more about Romy Grossberg, please visit her website, romygrossberg.com.
0: To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.